All right, so we're looking at chapter 10 and we're talking about divorce, which is uh, kind of in the middle of this teaching section uh, of the disciples as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The disciples know it. Um, and uh, we come to this section. Now, I want to talk first about geography. Where does this take place? More, more Pacific. Where is it? What's happening? Okay, so Jesus has left Capernaum right here. He's traveled probably around the Sea of Galilee like this, because you definitely don't go around this side. You cross here at Betshan, and you travel down the east side of the Jordan River on the side of Perea, because you don't want to go through the Samaritan territory, right? <laughs> so you travel all the way down, and then you're ready to cross here to Jericho. This is where Jesus is. He's in this place, somewhere here on this side of the, of the Jordan. Now, what's important about this area, what has happened in this area in the Gospel of Mark? Well, just to tell you, this is where John the Baptist was arrested. John the Baptist was arrested and held in one of Herod's palaces, which is located right here. Marcurius is the name of the pa palace. So he's there. That's where he had been killed. Now, what other story about divorce have we talked about in, in the Gospel of Mark? Herod taking his brother's wife, right? So the Pharisees come to Jesus. They come from Jerusalem. They cross the Jordan. They meet Jesus up in this specific area. Right close to the, the power of the, 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 the capital, where Herod is located, where John, this whole John the Baptist beheading took place. And they say to Jesus, what do you think about divorce? They're baiting him. They figure if they can get Jesus arrested by Herod before he reaches Jerusalem, they know, the disciples know, the crowd knows, Everybody knows that something's about to happen in Jerusalem. And the Pharisees want to try to, they want to intercept Jesus before this happens. And if they can get him arrested by Herod and get his head lopped off like John the Baptist had, takes care of their problem, right? Just like John the Baptist had been taken care of for them as a problem. You see? See the ingeniousness of their conniving? Jesus is between a rock and a hard place. If Jesus doesn't call out the issue of divorce, he's going soft on the law, right? He's not, he's not as brave of a prophet as John the Baptist. He's not standing up for righteousness and justice. If Jesus goes heavy on divorce, then he could find himself arrested and thrown into prison. So they think they've got him between a rock, the proverbial rock and the hard place. Okay? Ingenious. But you don't see that unless you think about the geography. All right? 
So you got to think about the geography and you got to think about, okay, why divorce? What is the issue? Why would the Pharisees ask this question at this time in this place? And when you answer those questions, all of a sudden it starts to make sense. Okay? So that's part of it. Now, we still need to deal with spiritually and literarily why we're talking about divorce at this section, but we'll get to that later. So um, now you can see strategically why they're talking about divorce. Jesus answers the question. First of all, he answers it with a question, right? So they say, what do you think about divorce? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? A man to divorce his wife. And Jesus says, what did the law of Moses say? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And then Jesus lowers the, the boom, right? And he says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and, be, will, and will be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. I have a little paper that I put together about divorce. Sorry, it's stuck. It didn't yes, slide. Um, to kind of outline some of these things. And there's a quote in here that I want to talk about that I think is really... Um, it's a really good brief analysis of this uh, by a guy by the name of Jim Edwards. He was a he wrote a commentary on the Book of Mark and um, was a, an old professor of Wayne Hardy's. Um, so don't hold that against him. But but he, he's he's uh, he's he's got a he's got something good to say here. Um, it's interesting that Jesus appealed Jesus. Jesus' focus and his answer is not about the law. It's really not about divorce. It's about the design and purpose of marriage, right? He goes all the way back to Genesis. He goes all the way back to not only pre-law, before Moses, he goes back to pre-sin, right? He goes all the way back to the original design of God. And he says, marriage was designed by God for a purpose. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and he will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so that they will no longer be two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There was a purpose for marriage and marriage, the sanctity of marriage, the... <coughs> inseparability of marriage needs to be honored as much as possible. Now, this is all pre-sin, right? Sin has come into the world, and because of your hardness of hearts, in other words, because of sin, divorce has come in as a, 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 a possibility, right? Before, it wasn't necessary, but it, it gets written even into the law of Moses because of our sin, Right? But it was never the original intention of God in marriage. So let's take a look at what um, Mr. Edwards has to say in this relationship between divorce and adultery. The adultery clause is not the key to Mark's narrative. Okay, this is the one that everybody gets tied up on, right? 
If she divorces, if he divorces, if, if anyone, look in verse 11, if anyone divorces his wife and marries another woman, he commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Um, the essential thrust of 10, 1 through 12 is the inviolability of marriage, of the marriage bond as intended and instituted by God. Jesus does not conceive of marriage on the grounds of its dissolution, but on the grounds of its architectural design and purpose by God. Human failure does not, does not alter the purpose of God. Just because sin enters the world and destroys everything doesn't mean that that's changed God's ultimate purposes and the things that he originally designed, right? So, this second paragraph is really important. The intent of Jesus' teaching is not to shackle those who fail in marriage with debilitating guilt. The question is not whether God forgives those who fail in marriage. The answer to that question is assured in 3.28, Mark 3.28, which says, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. So it's not like... Divorce is the unpardonable sin, okay? A lot of people have treated divorce as the unpardonable sin. It is not, right? All sin and blasphemies will be forgiven. There is, after all, no instance in Scripture of an individual seeking forgiveness and being denied it by God. All right? The question in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will hear the unique call of Christ to discipleship in marriage. In marriage, as in other areas to which the call of Christ applies, will we seek relief in what is permitted or commit ourselves to what is intended by God and, and commanded by Christ? Will we fall away in trouble and difficulty or follow Jesus in the costly journey of discipleship, even in marriage? Will we, will we sunder the divine union of the two become one flesh or will we honor and nurture marriage as a gift and creation of God? I think this is really good um, and really helpful. Uh, will we seek relief in what is permitted or we will, will we strive to obtain what is intended and commanded by God? Okay. And so I think this is a great perspective. Um, divorce. Okay. How many here think marriage is easy? Raise your hand. Easy. Oh, yeah. Easy. Oh, yeah. You've never been married or you've lost your memory. Okay. Right. Marriage is not easy. Marriage is difficult. It's very difficult, right? But there's just one thing to remember. A simple phrase. Whatever you say, dear. Yes. Yeah. As long as you remember that, everything goes smooth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Paul, Paul said, I'll, you'll save yourself a lot of trouble. <laughs> if you just say things. <laughs> Paul. Yes. So, so, so here it is. Divorce is, is a reality because of sin, right? There are reasons that divorce happens. Uh, 
um, reasons that, you know, even as a pastor, I find myself in a situation where I have to say, oh, the answer here is divorce, right? In the case of abuse. And I think Jesus would have been the same. This was mostly against men. You have to think and understand what divorce was used for in the Old Testament. These old crusty codgers were saying, is it permitted for a man to divorce his wife? And the reason they were asking this question is because men had complete control of the process. Divorce by Moses was instituted to protect women who were just being put away without anything, right? And at least it gave them legal status. But it had become, for men, an opportunity to remove a woman just because he wanted something different, right? You could trade in your 40 for a pair of 20s, right? She got too old. She got too ugly. I don't know. Whatever reason. They could put away a woman for whatever reason. She would burn the rice and beans. And they could abuse her too. And they could abuse her. And it still happens in the world, right? It still happens in many cultures in the world. It happens in our country. But it happens in many cultures in our world without defense. Like, for example, you talk to David Richardson, who talks about uh, widows in Africa. A husband dies, and I'm sure the same applies to divorce. And the woman loses rights to the property that she owned that along with her husband, it all reverts back to her husband's family. So she loses her property, her home, and even rights over her children. But most of the time, she's thrown out with her children from her house, from the property, and she's left destitute with absolutely no recourse. Okay? This is what has happened because of divorce, right? And so Jesus, by coming out strongly against divorce, is being very pro-woman right here. All right? But then he goes on to say, and if she, the woman, divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, in the Jewish culture, women didn't have the right to divorce. But what is he addressing in that phrase? Herodias. Herodias, exactly. So Jesus is not shying away from the political issue. He's calling out Herodias, who just had John the Baptist's head cut off right in his front yard, right in her front yard in front of her palace. And Jesus is saying she had no right to do it. So Jesus doesn't back away. He stands strong against the the issue of divorce. He stands up for women in his statement, and he points us back to the design. See you later. He points back to the design of God, okay? Um, And so I want to come back to the issue of divorce after we move through the passage because I want to talk about placement, all right? And and so we'll talk about that some more. So I don't know. I I found this kind of helpful as we work through this issue. So um, there is life after divorce. You know, I have to tell you, my mom was divorced. Um, I am the product of a second marriage for my mother. So, you know, I was born out of one of these, if a man takes a a wife after he's been married situations. They're, they're, you know, I kind of believe that God had a purpose, right? Um, I would have never come along. Um, and many people have that same testimony, right? And some of you have lived through divorce or um, been involved in situations where you've been very close to that kind of a situation and have had to work through this issue. And there is, Jesus is not, you have to understand Jesus in the context of what's being said. If you just take this passage in isolation, it feels really 
really judgmental and stark and inflexible. All right, but that's not, that's not the teaching of Jesus in its totality. You have to understand it in its context for it to make sense, for it to be harmonized with the broader teaching of Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. And I think Edwards helps us with that some here. <sighs> Move on. We got a lot, lot to do. There's two, two aspects, I think, that, that help address divorce. If you read Genesis beginning at you know, 1 1, yeah. it says that before Eve is mentioned, it says that God created them male and female. Right? And that's why he took part of Adam and made. So Eve was already created. Right? All the other animals, he created a, separately a male and a female of the species. Mm-hmm. Humans were completely different. Yep. And the other aspect is that sexual sin is in a category by itself. All other sin is against another person or against God. Sexual sin is against you. Yeah. So that's why it says when you marry, you're you're recreating that original being. Right. That, that one being. Right. Right. There is a reflection of God in marriage. Right. God is multi-person becoming one in some mysterious way, just as marriage is multi-personalities becoming one, one flesh in some mysterious way. And uh, so there is a reflection of God in, in marriage. And that's why you don't take lightly the breaking apart of that because it was intended to reflect God himself, right, to the world. And, um, and there are tremendous consequences. We all know the consequences of divorce. You know, even if they are, um, they are justified, right? There's still incredible consequences that come along with that. Pain, scars, children, you know, ongoing issues in the lives for generations sometimes, okay? So divorce is never to be taken lightly. Uh, but it is a consequence of sin. Um, and so Jesus points us back to the original plan for marriage. All right, let's move on. Uh, verse 13, someone read 13 through 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Okay, so we have another little children passage, right? Uh, So that's interesting, isn't it? Um, What happens here? Tell me what goes on here. less status than women. Right. Children really almost didn't exist. They, they were just there. Right. <clears throat> exactly. They had no rights. 
We tend to think of children. When we think of children, we think of the kid who rules the roost, right? Because, you know, my grandson comes over and everything revolves around him. He's not even 11 months old, but he, every, he can't even speak. But at every, his, our wish, right, is his command. Um, but that was not the way it was in the ancient world. Children, in essence, didn't even exist. They didn't even pay attention to them until they became adults, until they were nearing adulthood, which would be somewhere around 12 years old, right? Bar mitzvah. Um, because, well, you know, practical reason was because children died, right? Um, there was a lot of uh, with high infant mortality rate at the time. And so you just didn't know what kid was going to make it, right? So you kind of waited to see which one was going to make it. Then you invested in the child and began to train them. But up until that point, you just kind of, well, hopefully they'll make it. We'll see. Yeah, I don't think all parents, of course, were that callous. But in society, children did not hold that place of honor. Jesus honors children. We've already seen it, haven't we? We saw it in chapter 9, right? When Jesus put little Petey on his, on, his, on, his, on his lap, and he told him, this is what the kingdom is like, right? He pointed to the little child. And now all the little children come to Jesus. The mothers are bringing little children so that Jesus would bless them. And what, how do the disciples respond? Jesus doesn't have time for you. We're on a schedule here. Ladies, get these kids out of here. Right? And how does Jesus respond to them? Huh? What's the word? Jesus was indignant. He was indignant. He was ticked. Okay? It's important to remember this word because it's going to show up again. All right. So, uh, Jesus honors the little children. He says, um, he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, will never enter it. You must become like a little child to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples went, hmm? Okay. On an aside, is this where the Catholics get blessing infants? Probably. Yeah. So now we move on. We move on to the rich young ruler. Somebody read for us. Uh, verses 17 uh, through 31. And as he was setting out on the journey, <clears throat> a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit the eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. 
disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Definitely all right, not. that's good. All right, so let's talk a little bit about this. This man comes to Jesus. Who is he? Um, we call him the rich young ruler, traditionally. He's a young man who, um, he seems to have done everything right, right? Uh, yeah, what is his approach to Jesus? Okay. When have we seen this before? Yeah, oh, good old, what's his name? Jairus. It's the same way Jairus approached Jesus, okay? He came before him in public, fell on his knees before him, um, asked him a question. Uh, Jesus, we, you know, we saw Jesus' response to him. We saw that he was a man who demonstrated faith. In the same way, this man comes with a faithful approach to Jesus. He asks a good question, right? How can I inherit eternal life? Good teacher. And I love what Jesus responds. He says, uh, you call me good, only God is good. Just kind of throws that out there, you know. Um, he's basically saying, do you actually know who I am? You call me good teacher, but do you realize that only God is good? Do you realize that you're speaking to God? That's what he's saying. Uh, he just kind of leaves that little kernel out there. Um, and then he goes on to say, keep the law. And he said, I have. Since I was a little boy, I have sincerely and honestly done my best to keep the law of God. And Jesus believes him. Jesus sees the sincerity in his response. He's not like the Pharisees. Certainly I keep the law. I have the law right here stuck to my head in a phylactery, right? So everybody can see how faithful I am. That's not the case with this guy. He's been faithful. He's done his best to follow the law because he believes that's the right way to get close to God. And it is the right way to get close to God. And Jesus says, but there's one thing you lack. But it, oh, what's Jesus' response to him? What, he loved him. Jesus loved him. And he says to this man, sell everything that you have, give everything away to the poor, and then come and follow me. This man was being called to be a disciple. He's being called at the last moment. This is like a week and a half before Jesus', Jesus crucifixion. And he's being called the same way that Peter was called. Right? But God says, uh, and I think, think about what this person could have done as a disciple. 
He could have, he could have been known to the entire world for all of history. But he couldn't let go, right? He is Mark chapter 4, classic thorny soil, right? Because his riches and his spirituality were growing up in the same soil. But one was choking the other. The seed in his heart was good, good seed, right? But there was something else competing that was stronger. And that was his reliance and his love for money. And he couldn't let go. And uh, Jesus then turns. He turns, well, he turns away and he leaves in sadness. And uh, Jesus then says to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And he says, the disciples were amazed at, as, at his words. Children, he says, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then it says the disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, who can be saved? Now, why are they so astonished? Because of what Jesus says. They're so astonished because... They believed, the popular belief was, how do you know if God is, is, is on your side? If you've got God in your corner, then he blesses you. Well, if you're rich, then clearly God's blessing is upon you. Those are the people that the Spirit of God is upon the best. They're the, they're the ones who are closest to God because you can see God's blessing on them. They got bucks. They got money. And so they had equated prosperity with spirituality. This was true of, um, this is how we got, you know, our Yankee work ethic, right? They were all Presbyterians up there. They were all Calvinists. And they didn't know whether they were elect or not. So if we don't know whether we're elect, God's elect or not, how can we know? Well, if God's hand of blessing is on our life, then we must be elect. So everybody worked really hard to be prosperous so that they would appear and they would have assurance of salvation and they would appear to the community that God was blessing them, right? And that's how we became such hard workers in America. It was due to our warped Presbyterian beliefs, okay? Um, that's how that was all born. And the, the Jews had the same idea. And that's why the disciples are so amazed because this is what they had always thought. Um, that the wealthy were clearly blessed by God. And so they must be, you know, prosperous uh, because God is blessing them. And Jesus is saying the opposite. He's saying it's difficult, virtually impossible for a rich person to get into the kingdom. And they're going, we don't get it. Is there any significance, given verse 15, where he says you have to be like a child to enter the kingdom? Here he calls them. You know, I think there is. I think because they have taken on the heart of a child, right? They have, they have obeyed. They have responded like a child. They've been trusting Jesus. And so, yeah, I think so. I think so. And so then Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, don't think that God can't save rich people. He does and he will because God can do the impossible. He can sort out and separate out, right, that that temptation. But isn't it true? 
Riches takes the place of God. When we have money, we don't trust God as much, right? Because we feel like we can handle it ourselves. We can prepare for our own future. We can cover our own bases, right? When we don't have anything, when we don't have any money, we've all been in that place at some point in our lives, right? When we didn't know where the next meal was coming from, when we knew our next, our next salary was already spent. <laughs> you ever been there, right? We've all been there. And what do you do? You draw close to God, <laughs> right? Because you're trusting in God for everything, for your daily bread, literally. But when you get past that and you, you begin to trust in your wealth and you don't trust in God as much, you trust in yourself, right? And that's the big temptation and that's the big danger with wealth. So there it is. Jesus gives this teaching on wealth. It's very important. And then Peter sits up and he says, but we've given up everything for you. And Jesus says, well, don't worry about it. Okay. Okay. God is going to reward you. Um, he's going to give you, pay you back for what you have given. Dan, just an aside, and it's people today uh, rely on doctors for life. Right. I mean, it's, it's wealth in some ways, but we've kind of seen a shift of not relying. I mean, I'm not naming a clinic, but you know, yeah. we'll be healed. But they're trying to extend life. They're trying to, you know control their control. lives when the doctors can't control everything there's a huge frustration um, out there right absolutely it's so good like it's the same thing it's the same principle the right same principle. Yeah. verse 32 is an interesting little verse it says they were on their way up to jerusalem with jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid what a weird little verse yeah. <laughs> okay Something has changed with Jesus. There's an intensity about him. I think Luke says he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. There's, there's a demeanor change. There's a focus. Jesus is on his way to his death. He's on his way to this prophetic drama that's about to play out. And, you know, the fun is over. It's time to get serious. The weight of the world is literally on Jesus' shoulders at this point. And the disciples sense it. And the crowd sees it. And none of them know how to respond to it. But something has changed. Something's up. Okay? And they sense it. It's interesting that Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were dallying back because they didn't really want to go to Jerusalem and see all this bad stuff. And so he's actually leading the parade, which would normally not be the case. Right, right. Yeah. Well, except that he is like a shepherd leading, too. Yeah? Yeah, yeah I mean, you can look at it in different ways. Um, Jesus is, in essence, anxious to get to his death. Uh, he's not cowering. He's not reluctantly going to Jerusalem. Jesus is, is leading off, and everyone is going, there's something going on here, Okay. It's an interesting verse, and it just it makes you think about what's going on here spiritually. Again, Jesus takes the 12 aside, and he says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, 
who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he'll rise from the dead. So now we see the Gentiles are going to be involved in this. Jesus, the third time now, has predicted his death. Well, it's more detailed. Bye, Judy. Yes, more detail is coming. So we have that going on. Then, then we have James and John show up. James and John show up and they go, Hey, Jesus, we need to talk to you. Okay? Um, there's two of us and you have a right and a left hand. How about one of us sits on your right and one of us sits on your left? What do you think? Okay? And Jesus is almost amused by it because he's like, Do you really know what you're asking? Do you have any idea? Because he knows what's about to come. Do you know that my left and my right are a cross? Right? Do you, do you realize that? See you later. And so um, there's this weight about it, right? But they ask, how do the disciples respond to this request? They are what? Indignant. They're indignant. Yeah. And it's the same word. Look it up in Blue Letter Bible. It's the same word that's used before. And so the, Jesus is indignant because the disciples are not honoring children. They are indignant because, because someone else has beat them to the punch and tried to, for the race to the top of position and authority. Okay? They're still thinking like Pharisees. They're still thinking in like old, the old leaders. Right? Okay. So um, then he goes on, he gives some more teaching about, Genta, about, about servant leadership. Verse 45, for even the sons of man, the man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, right? You are to be servants of all. You are to not be first, but you are to be last. Okay, now the last story here is blind Bartimaeus. Where does the story of Bartimaeus take place? Jericho. Geographically, where is Jericho? It's the jumping off spot for Jerusalem. It's the last stop before you get to Jerusalem. Because you go from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's a desolate road that no one is on. And you go all the way up that road and you're in Jerusalem. It's the last stop. So it marks the end of this period of preparation for the entrance into Jerusalem. Next week, we're at the triumphal entry. All right? They came to Jericho, um, and uh, there's Bartimaeus. He's a blind man. And the, the, I love this story. It's, it's an ironic story. He's blind, but he sees better than anyone else. Jesus comes to town and he yells out what? Jesus who? Son of, Son of David. That's a messianic title. You see, he gets it. No one's used a messianic title with Jesus yet in the crowd. This guy's blind, but he sees, right? He sees better than anyone else. And he says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He cries out and he cries out. And the people are like, shut up, man. Just quiet down. And he cries out all the more. He's acting like a child, right? You ever try to tell a child to be quiet? Right? What do they do? They cry out all the more, right? Be quiet in church. Ah! 
Um, that's what happens. And we see this man acting like a child. Okay? And then we see this incredible confession. And then Jesus notices him. He hears him. Here's the commotion. And he calls him forward. And the men say, everybody say, well, cheer up, buddy. Jesus has called for you. What is, how does he respond? What does he do? He jumps up. What's he do? He throws his cloak aside. That's not wise for a blind man. Is he ever going to find it again? Right? You're a poor beggar. Your cloak is one of the few possessions that you have. It's a very important possession. To throw it aside is not very wise. But he demonstrates exactly what Jesus was teaching about wealth. Here this man has nothing but a cloak. He hears the call of Jesus and he casts it aside because it might slow him down. That's the way we are to respond to wealth. And he comes before Jesus and Jesus says, what, what can I do for you? And he goes, duh, I'm blind. And Jesus says, receive your sight. Go on your way. Go do whatever it is that you would like to do. Go do what you have dreamed and fantasized about. And what does he do? He follows Jesus on the way. He gives up all those dreams and he follows Jesus. In essence, what Bartimaeus does is exactly what Jesus has been teaching all the way down the road. He acts like a child. He lets go of his wealth. He confesses Jesus. He is uh, not striving for position, but he follows Jesus with humility, giving up his dreams and his aspirations. He is the fulfillment. He is the illustration of the disciple, of what a disciple should be. See it? It's a, he, he, he brings all of these teachings together in himself. He is an illustration. All right. So I kind of rushed to the end, mainly because we're out of time, but also because I want to talk about this issue of divorce. If we look at it again, I want to just take a minute. If we look back at chapter 9, what we studied in chapter 9, and what we study in chapter 10, all of these things are parallel. In chapter 9, we talked about Jesus' death and resurrection. We talked about the first becoming last. We talked about children being honored. We talked about people who are jealous because of authority, right? Because they were striving for one another over who is the greatest. We talked about sacrifice for the kingdom, right? Because if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, right? And we have these same themes being talked about here in chapter 10. So they're in different order, but they're the same themes. And they seem to parallel one another, and they're linked together by this issue of divorce, actually by the issue of marriage. And I think the issue of marriage, I think what Jesus is saying here by putting this in the middle is that God, the relationships of the kingdom, the way that we are to live in the kingdom is what God always intended. That's the way marriage was intended before sin. And a king, the kingdom life, 
The life of a disciple is a restoration of what was intended before sin entered the world. And this is the way we are to live. We're not to take the easy way out. We're to strive and struggle to live this kind of life. We're to reflect it in our marriage relationships. We're to reflect it in our church relationships, in our relationships with one another as we live out this life of the kingdom. Okay? And so this picture becomes central to the... To its, the kingdom life is a restoration of what God intended before sin entered the world. Does that make sense? And we see how this kind of all ties together in our passage. All right. We'll stop there because we don't have any more time. But we could go on. (laughs)